you have your Bibles, grab them. Matthew chapter 16 is where we're going to camp out this morning. Matthew chapter 16 as we continue in our sermon series through the encounters with the Messiah, encountering this Jesus, this messianic figure. As he has these conversations, these moments with different people. We've looked at this encounter with Nicodemus. We've looked at the rich young ruler. Last week we looked at his encounter with the devil. Uh, and this week we're going to look at his encounter with one of his very own. Matthew 16, let's start by reading, starting in verse, th- verse 13. Matthew writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and pens the very words of God, and he says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, our, you know, our identity as human beings has always, for the history of the world, been important to us. But it seems, uh, whether true or not, it seems like every year uh, our identity becomes more and more important. Who we say that we are. And so we find something to identify with, whether that be a political party or our sexual orientation, or our identity around our mental health struggles, or our religious affiliations, or even our socially economic status. We so badly want to know, who am I? Who am I? That we are willing to attach our identity to anything that will stick, to anything that gives us meaning and purpose and explains life to us the best, to anything that gives us a home or a sense of community and belonging. In our story this morning, we're going to see that Jesus cares a lot about our identity as well. So much so that he is going to change someone's identity, and he is going to mark that change by changing their name. You know, names to us seem insignificant. We see names just as Uh, something people call us to identify us with. We see names, they come in and out of fashion, right? Like none of us are going to visit the nursing home this afternoon and meeting a girl named Haley. And in the same way, no one right now is holding a baby in the nursery named Mildred. But give it a little bit of time, and they will be. There will be Haley's in the nursing home, and and there will be Mildred's in the nursery. Names come and go as fashions and trends change. But the Bible tells us that names are more than just identifiers. They actually communicate who we belong to, who we are, where we fit in the story, and what our identity is. When we adopted our son Eli, we changed his name. We changed his name to identify him no longer as the family that rejected him, but to the new family to which he now belongs. And we gave him three new names. We gave him the name Riley, was my wife's family maiden name. We gave him the name Wilson, which is my family name. 
Uh, and so to communicate to him for all his days that he is now joining the legacy of two families joined together. And we also gave him another middle name. We gave him the name Ever, meaning that he will forever be both a Riley and a Wilson. He is forever brought into this family. Not written in pencil, not temporary, but permanently. He is ours. And so we call him by his new name, his new identity, Elijah Ever Riley Wilson. Because that is who he is. And if we were to start calling him by his old name, Brantley. Sorry if your name's Brantley. Sorry if your name's Brantley, I take it back. If we called him by that name, he would not even look at us. He would not even recognize that we were talking to him. Because that name is foreign to him because it's of his past. That identity is his no more. It's not who he is. Our encounter with Jesus this morning takes us to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was named after a God named Philip who had received the land from his father, Herod the Great, who had received the land from Caesar himself. And so when Philip got the land, he wanted to honor Caesar, and so he called it Caesarea. But he also wanted to honor himself. And so he called it Philippi, so that his name would last and be permanently tied to the land, so that his name would matter, so that his name would go on. And so here is Jesus and the disciples, and they've come to Caesarea Philippi. They've come to this Roman pagan city that is named after uh, somebody who thinks he's really important. It is filled with temples. There is a temple to Baal. There is a temple to a god named Pan. And there is a temple to the man Caesar Augustus with the inscription on it, Caesar is Lord. And so it is in the midst of all of these competing religions, in the midst of all these competing philosophies, that God, that Jesus asks the bold question of his disciples. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? What do people name me as? What name do they give me is the question. Who do they think I am? Based on their answers, here's the first truth I want you to see this morning. If you name Jesus based on your perception alone, you will miss who he really is. If you name Jesus based on your perception alone, you will miss who he really is. The disciples, the followers of Jesus, had been out in the towns. They had heard the talk of the town. They had been in the marketplace. They knew that Jesus was the hot new news, <clears throat> that he was a fascinating figure to everyone, and everyone was talking about him. And so Jesus simply asks, what are people saying about me? Who do they think that I am? What name are they giving me? And the disciples speak of him in verse 14, and they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. This is an easy answer for the disciples. It doesn't cost them anything, right? No pressure. Just this is what we've heard. This is what the people are saying. And the people are talking. They have all these different ideas about who Jesus is. And they're beginning to list the, old, the prophets of old, these guys that aren't around anymore. These guys that used to come and talk on God's behalf and point people to what was to come. And it's interesting that people thought Jesus was one of these old prophets reincarnated or at least come in the spirit of one of these old prophets. But I want you to notice what people are doing when they do that. 
You see, they are answering or they are naming Jesus according to the flesh, according to their own perception. You see, they know Jeremiah the prophet. They've read Jeremiah the prophet. They know Elijah and others. And when they see Jesus talking, they say, oh, he's, he reminds me of what Jeremiah talked about. Maybe Jesus is Jeremiah come again. Or, oh, he reminds me of Elijah. Elijah healed some people. Maybe he's a prophet like Elijah. Maybe he's a Elijah come again to us. And so they put Jesus in a box and tell who he is based on their limited experience and limited perception of the situation. They're answering the question, who is Jesus, according to the flesh, according to what they can see, according to what they can hear, according to what they know. That was not unique to them. We do that today. People in society today do the very same thing. If we were to ask people in our community today, who do you think Jesus is? You would get many answers. You would have people say, well, he's a, he's a good moral teacher. Jesus taught good moral principles. He taught the golden rule and the way of life. He taught to be kind and loving and gentle. And they would say, you know, it's a good thing to model your life after Jesus. Because if you model your life after Jesus, you too will be a good moral person. Some people say, no, you know, Jesus was like, a, well, he was a wise sage. He taught a way to live that liberates us from the bondage of materialism. They would, they would say, you know, he brought a new philosophy to the world where internal peace is achieved through humility and love and giving away your life to others. Modeling your life after Jesus, they would say, well, makes you even richer internally. Ben Shapiro, conservative political commentator, recently said, when asked the question who he thought Jesus was, he said Jesus was a revolutionary that tried to overthrow Rome and got killed for his trouble. Some people would say he's just a man, no different than Plato or Socrates, pitching a new philosophy, a new way of life. You can follow it or reject it. It's not important. It's just some dude's thoughts. He amassed a big following, and his followers didn't want his teaching to go away, and so they made sure it stayed around. And yet still others would say, Jesus is love. He's the embodiment of love. He helps us to love others, and he lets us do whatever we want. He's accepting and loving, and that's who he is. You see, everyone, once they hear about Jesus, they must name him. They must call him something. They must do something with him. When you encounter the real Jesus, you have no other option but to decide who you think he is. For some of us, he fulfills an emotional need. For others, he becomes a political tool in their arsenal. For some, they cannot believe because if he was real, he wouldn't have let something bad happen to them in their life. And so they can't take him. But for everyone who encounters Jesus, they name him. They do something with him. And most of us, like the people in this town, are naming him according to our own perception. We are naming Jesus according to our own perception, naming him based on the facts as we see them, uh, naming him uh, with disregard often to the evidence around us, and so often we name him wrongly. We get him wrong. We get wrong the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Some of the reasons we get that wrong is because we bring baggage into the question, and the baggage won't let us face it. And so we get it wrong. For some of us, we just don't have a category to think about who he really is. And we get it wrong. Sometimes for us, it's just harder to face the truth. And it's easier for us to believe the lie, to believe the thing that we want to believe about him. And so here in this pagan city, surrounded by the temples of these other gods, Jesus asks, 
who do the people think I am? And they answer it. Honestly, people aren't sure. There's a lot of opinions out there. There's a, there's a lot of speculation going around about who he thinks they are. That's what they tell them. And that sounds like today. Today people say no one should have the exclusive right to name Jesus. No one knows uh, who he really is. There are lots of opinions out there, but no one's 100% right today, people say. But then Jesus hearing their answer, an answer that costs them nothing, an answer that comes with no pressure, follows it up with another question. Okay, I, I understand who they say that I am. But who do you say that I am? Who do, uh, here, the southern translation would be, who do y'all say that I am? He's talking to all of his disciples. Who do y'all say that I am? And here's what we learn. Naming Jesus correctly is a spiritual gift. Naming Jesus correctly is a spiritual gift. Jesus asked this question to the group of disciples. But Simon steps up, as he often does, with confidence in verse 16. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies to him and he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah is what that means. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Simon has this moment. He steps up and he declares, Jesus, you are the Christ. And he names him the Christ. Simon is saying, you are more than a prophet because all the prophets pointed forward to someone else. And you, you don't point forward, Jesus, you point to yourself. All the prophets said, thus says the Lord, and spoke on behalf of God. But you don't say, thus says the Lord. You say, I say unto you. You speak on your own authority. You have healed. You have raised the dead. And you have even proclaimed forgiveness of sins. You are no prophet, sir. You are the Christ. Christ is not his last name. It is his title. It means anointed one or Messiah. He is saying Jesus is the one to whom all history has been waiting. The Savior who has come to fix and right the world. The King, the one who reigns over all the earth. Simon looks at Jesus and he says, everybody else is guessing and trying to figure out who you are. But I know you are the Christ, the King who's come to reign and fix the world. In the midst of the pagan temples and the shrine to Caesar, Simon proclaims, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Baal is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Pan is not Lord, but Jesus is Lord. This man who stands in front of me is the son of the living God. And Jesus confirms it to him. He says, you are, you are right, Simon, son of Jonah. And I want you to notice two things about how Jesus says this to him. Number one, he says, he is blessed. He says, blessed are you, Simon, because you've rightly named me. You've gotten me right. You are blessed. And, and blessed means more than just, oh, you're happy. Blessed means more than even just having joy. Blessed is inheritance language. To be blessed is inheritance language. It means he is going to inherit the kingdom of God. Think of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessing is inheritance, and Simon is going to be blessed. He's going to enter the kingdom of God because he understands who Jesus actually is. And the second thing, he says, flesh and blood did not re reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. How can Simon say so confidently that this is the truth? 
Everyone else has named Jesus wrongly. He's gone to the town. Everyone else says, well, maybe he's Jeremiah. Well, maybe he's Elijah. Well, maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's this or that. And, and you know, today, everybody's saying, well, maybe he's a good teacher. Maybe he's a wise sage. You know, maybe he's just this loving person. You know, maybe he's just a dude like Plato. How is it that he can, with such confidence, claim the exclusivity of this is who you are? How can he know he is right? The Father reveals it to him. The Spirit of God opened Simon's heart and mind to see and believe the truth right in front of him, revealed by God. It wasn't that Simon, however, was completely oblivious. It's saying God opened his eyes to see the truth. But Simon had, it's not like he had never thought about this question before, right? He's been walking with Jesus for years. He's been watching Jesus heal people and teach and do all of these things. He's been asking himself this very question for over a year now. Who is this man I'm following? He'd been walking with Jesus, been asking this question. But he needed more than just the evidence. He had all of the evidence right in front of him. He needed more than just the evidence. He needed a softened heart to be able to believe the evidence in front of his face. So how does one come to a right understanding, a right naming of Jesus as the Christ? Not just as a good teacher, not as a wise sage. Not that he's a, how do we get Jesus right? How do we know that? Well, first of all, it's not blind faith. Right? That's, that's the accusation sometimes, right? You just believe without seeing. No, 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 no. We don't have blind faith. We don't just go, close my eyes and against all logic and all reason, we just jump and believe in Jesus. No, no, no. It is not believe in Jesus against all reason, against all evidence, to the contrary. No, actually, it is through examining all of the evidence. It is through looking at all of the, the reliability of the biblical accounts. It is looking at the scientific evidence of an intelligent designer. And most importantly, importantly, looking at the evidence of whether or not Jesus was actually raised from the dead. And when you look at all of that evidence, the evidence is overwhelming. It truly is. The Bible is one of the most accurate historical documents on the planet because it was so well preserved. There's over 6,000 copies within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. There is no, virtually no variation between the copies. We look at all of the evidence of the creator, and that's obvious. We look at the evidence for a resurrection, and it's overwhelming. There's no bones. There's no body. There's an empty tomb. All they got to do to dispute the claims is show me the body. And they don't have one, and they think some, some fishermen took out the Roman guards. There's no body. The evidence is clear, and I don't have, that's a whole other sermon to go through the evidence. I ain't got time to do that. But if you go based off the evidence, it takes more faith to be an atheist. Many people do not look at the evidence. They just stick their head in the sand and just believe what they want because it's easier. But many people do. Many people do look at the evidence, but yet they still don't believe. Why is that? Why is it that people can, can go and search and, and look at all the evidence and not believe? It's not because the evidence isn't compelling. It is. It's because the eyes of their hearts have been darkened by the enemy of this world. And God has not yet granted them the, the sight and the softened heart to be able to see what's right in front of him. And that's what he does for Simon. So many of you have probably heard of Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a journalist and an atheist uh, some years ago. And he thought the ideas of God and Jesus were a silly myth. A silly myth meant to coddle the minds of the weak. He was an alcoholic who only wanted to live for the, the next pleasure. And he, he moved into his house. He's recently married. And his neighbor kept badgering his wife, inviting her to church. And she didn't want to go. She was an atheist as well. But to get her off her back, she decided to go. And she went to this church and she met Jesus and fell in love with him and with the church and with all that meant. And her husband, Lee Strobel, was not happy. He was not happy. 
He said that he did not sign up to marry a Christian. That is not what he wanted in life. Uh, that went against his lifestyle and what he wanted. And so he went to church with her in order to prove to her that everything that they did was wrong and it was like a cult sucking the life out of her. That Sunday morning sermon was on basic Christianity and he left furious, so mad that he decided to take his journalism career and all of his journalistic knowledges, knowledge to, of investigating things to seek out to disprove Christianity. And over the next year and nine months, he interviewed every expert he could get his hands on on the issues of the resurrection of Jesus and the historicity and the reliability of the Bible. Every relevant field he interviewed. He compiled all of the evidence. And at the end of a year and nine months, he put all of the evidence on a legal pad, pros and cons. And he had been fighting and fighting that evidence as it was building and building and building until finally... He sat in his home looking at a long list of pros and no cons, and he gave Jesus his heart and his life. Because he couldn't believe the truth right in front of him for so long until finally God gave him the gift. See, coming to Christ is not a blind leap of faith. It is not believing in some silly fairy tale. It is not believing in something against all the evidence to the contrary. No, it is a gift of God whereby he opens our eyes to see the evidence that is right in front of us. You see, there are some of you in this room, and you have not taken the claims of Jesus very seriously. You have dismissed him. You have laughed him off. You have copped out, copped him up to a, a legend or a fairy tale or a, a religious figure who died for his trouble. And you have not given him the time of day to investigate the evidence for yourself. You've copped out and said, oh, he's just a wise teacher, just a moral teacher, just some religious dude. And in so doing, you are doing yourself. A disservice. And you are missing out on an amazing gift, an amazing life, an amazing future that God is offering you. But the only way for you to get it is through Jesus, right? But you have to give him the time of day. you got to do the hard, deep work, the critical thinking necessary to believe. But others of you in this room, you have done that work. Right, you, have, uh, you haven't come to him, you've, you've kept him at arm's, arm's length because you know the evidence. You know the legitimacy. You know the arguments, but yet you still reject him. Many reasons that might be the case, but I wonder if right now, all of those reasons that have seemed really good to you for why not to believe, as you've rejected the evidence, not looked at the evidence, or, or suppressed the evidence, uh, maybe there's something in your past, there's, uh, you think you're not good enough, or there's, you know, you want to change your lifestyle, whatever, there's something holding you back. But I wonder if not right now in this moment, you feel a little bit of a pull, a little bit of a tug. And that is the gift that God gave to Simon. The gift of this pull to believe, this pull, this tug to open his eyes and embrace Jesus for who he really is, the Christ. And if that tug is pulling you this morning, don't, don't ignore that. The third thing I want us to see is if you name Jesus based on your expectations, you're going to miss what he's done. If you name Jesus based on your expectations, you'll miss what he's done. Not only if you do it on based on your perceptions, will you miss who he is. But if you do it based on, if you name him, if you understand who he is based on your expectations of who he should be, you're going to miss what he's done. You see, Simon has just finished hitting the nail on the head. He rightly gets it. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He, he knows it. But yet, after he does that, this must be the fastest 180 in the history of the world. Simon must have been feeling really good about himself. His confidence is built up, and he puts his foot in his mouth because in verse 21 he says, 
Jesus begins to, 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 to tell about what he's got to do. Jesus says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day be raised. And Simon took him aside, right? He pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but things of man. You see, Jesus affirms Simon. He says, yes, you got it right. You called me the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is who I am. You have done that. And then he begins to tell him, now listen, because I'm the Christ, here's what i got to do. i got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to be persecuted. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed. But don't worry, because I'm going to raise on the third day. And Peter, or Simon, feeling pretty good about himself, says, uh-uh, no, sir. He just said, you're God. But you don't get to do that. Right? So he's feeling good about himself. And one breath he calls him God, and the next breath he's telling him what he can and can't do. And Jesus looks at Simon and he says, get behind me, Satan. What is, why in the world would Jesus say that? Why would he look at his disciple, who he's just given props to, and say, get behind me, Satan. Do you remember last week in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness. And the third temptation from Satan was an offer to receive the kingdom of the world without suffering. Satan said, I will give it to you right now if you just bow and worship me. You can have the kingdom right now. You can skip the suffering. You can skip the cross. You can skip the humiliation and all that dying mess. You can skip all that and have it right now. Simon unknowingly is asking Jesus to do the same thing Satan did. He's saying, Jesus, come take your kingdom by force. Come take your kingdom without a cross, without the suffering. And Jesus is saying, Simon, you fool. You are being satanic. Because the suffering, because the cross, because the dying is the whole reason I've come. It's why I'm here. Without the cross, I cannot save you or anyone else. You see, like Simon, sometimes we try to understand Jesus based on our own expectations of who he is and what he should do. And Simon wanted him to come and take the kingdom and not have to suffer anything. Simon didn't want Jesus to die. He wanted him to be king through force. Some of you in this room, you look at Jesus with your expectations of him. And it has nothing to do with a bloody cross or an empty tomb. With a resurrection. Your expectation is that Jesus uh, is somebody who you come to for you to, for, to have your prayers answered. He is someone you come to for comfort. He is some, someone you come to to prevent bad things from happening to you. So that you can have an easy life or a sense of love and a sense of purpose. And sometimes, sometimes people reject Jesus because he doesn't fulfill what their end of the bargain is. That they were looking for something from Jesus that he never offered them. And they reject him based on their own expectations of who he was supposed to be. But that's not why he came. When we name Jesus based on our expectations, we're going to get it wrong. Jesus came to heal the world. He came to end suffering. He came to stop wars and stop disease and to bring peace. He came to make you whole. He came to fix the entire cosmos, to patch everything up and fix it all. But in order to do that, he first has to fix you. He's got to heal you. And then to do that, he's got to deal with your sin. And your sin stands in the way of God making you whole. You see, Jesus came to suffer. He, he, he came and he never lied. 
He came and he never disobeyed his parents. He came and he never lusted after a woman in his heart. He came and he never killed anybody. He came and he was never even a bit prideful. And yet, Jesus was whipped with a cat of nine tails, which is a, 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 a whip with leather that's got pot, broken pottery and glass and broken bones in it. It was hit on his back and ripped off so that the skin of his back was ripped off until you could see his ribs and the nerve endings on his back were exposed. And then they placed a giant, big, heavy, wooden, splintery cross on his back to carry up a hill. And with every step, the cross rubs on the back of those exposed nerve endings, putting excruciating pain through his body. And then they nail him to the cross, nailing the nails to the nerve endings on his arms and legs. So that when you die on a cross, you do not die from pain. And you do not die from blood loss. You die from asphyxiation, from drowning on your own blood. And so as you hang there, your, your lungs fill with blood, and you have to pull yourself up on those nails in order to get a breath. And so Jesus is trying to get a breath, pulling up, shooting pain through his whole body with the nails through those nerve endings. And he, he eventually succumbs to his wounds, and he dies of asphyxiation, of drowning on his own blood. But why did this all happen to him? Why did he do that? Why did he rebuke Simon for trying to stop that from happening? Because he came to do it for you. He came to trade places with you. He came loving you so much that he was going to go through that horrific experience so you didn't have to. Jesus became sin, literally became sin, and bore the anger and the wrath and the justice of God so that you could go free. Your sin is what is keeping you away from the world Jesus is making new and whole and perfect. And he did not leave you behind, but invite you into this new perfect world. And he does it by trading places with you. Guys, listen to this. Every other religion in the world, without fail, every other religion in the world says this. Some, some, some teacher comes along, some person comes along and they say, if you want to get to paradise, if you want to get to nirvana, you want to get to God or whatever, you've got to do A, B, and C. And if you do A, B, and C, you can climb the ladder and you can get to God. But only Christianity, only Jesus comes and he says, the ladder that you must climb is insurmountable. You can't, you can't climb it. It's too big. The problems you bring are too big for you to fix on your own. The only hope you have is that God would pour out his blood as a sacrifice in order to forgive you of your sins. And once that happens, you can come willingly. It's fascinating. In verse 20, he said, Jesus says to the disciples, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. What? <laughs> what? Jesus, the whole reason Jesus is here is to tell everybody about him, and he's just told the disciples, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. Don't tell anybody who I am. Why in the world would Jesus not want his disciples to go tell everyone the truth? It's because they don't get it yet. It's because if you go out right now, guys, and start telling stuff about me, you're going to get it wrong. And you're going to be spreading fake news because you don't understand. Because you don't understand that I didn't come to take the world by force. I came to take the world through dying. I came to take the world through suffering. I had to come and deal with your sin. And the only way I can deal with your sin is to take your sins upon me and die for them. You're not ready to tell the world about me just yet. And finally, the last thing you got to understand is this. When you rightly name Jesus, he names you in return. When you rightly name Jesus, he names you in return. What's the whole point about this? What's, what's going on? I told you at the beginning this was about your identity. It's about your name. Notice verse 24. Then Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You want to follow me? you got to die too, he says. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? You can gain the world and forfeit your soul. It's fascinating. The word soul here is the Greek word psyche, often translated soul or life, but it is so much more than that. It's where we get our word psychology from, psyche. It literally means your true self, your true identity. You can gain the world and lose your true self. You can gain the world and lose your true identity. He is saying you can gain the whole world and lose who you really are. And the only way for you to find out who you really are, to get your true identity, is to lose yourself in me. You have to die like I'm going to die, but die in me. When you give up your life for Christ, what you find is a whole new life, a whole new world. A whole new life, your true identity. When Simon looks at Jesus and he says, you are the Christ, notice what I skipped over and what Jesus does for him. Verse 17, he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Simon, you are Peter, you are Petros, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, I tell you, you are Peter. He changes his name. You are the rock. You are a little rock, and I am going to use you to help build my church. Simon comes to Jesus, and instantly he gives him a new identity. You are the rock. And when you come to Christ, like, Pete, like Simon did, not only does he uh, forgive you and bring you into his family, but he changes your name too. He changes your identity too. But wait, you say. Peter has just been called the rock. And in a sentence later, he's not really acting like the rock. I just really resisted making a, a joke about the rock. You're welcome for that. Um, <laughs> Peter gets it right. He gets his name changed. And then he says, but don't go suffer and die. And he gets it wrong. He's not really acting like a rock. He's acting like a broken little pebble. He's not really acting like the, he's not acting out the identity that Jesus just gave him. So what's going on? Don't you see what Jesus does? Jesus takes people. He gives them new names. And he makes them into what the name says about them. He gives you a new name and you don't deserve it just yet. But he's going to make you into what that name says about you. He takes Abram in the Old Testament. This super old dude with a barren wife. And he says, you're no longer Abram, you are Abraham, which means the father of many nations. And God makes it true, and he opens the womb of his wife, and he has a son. He takes Jacob, which means deceiver, trickster. And he says, you are no longer Jacob, you are Israel, the one who struggles with God and wins. And he wrestles with God, and though he walks away with a limp, he wins, and his identity is changed, and a whole nation is built off of him. He gives him a new identity. He takes Simon and he says, I am going to build such a mighty church that even you, little rock, the word Petra there is little rock, you will help me build it. And not even the gates of hell will stop me. He gives Peter a new identity and he makes him into it. Right, you know, right now, Peter's failing. And in a little bit, Peter's going to keep failing. Jesus is going to go finally suffer which he's told him over and over again is going to happen. And what does Peter do? I don't know that dude. He's arrested and Peter's like, I don't know that guy. And he betrays Jesus three times. He runs away like a scaredy little girl. 
a scaredy cat. He runs away and hides and betrays Jesus. He is not acting like his identity. But eventually, Jesus makes Peter into the rock he's declared him to be. And one day, Peter will, Peter will preach to thousands. He's going to be thrown in jail and flogged and beaten and told to not do it again. And he's going to go do it again. He is going to, to be this strong rock, and the church is going to be built upon him and the other apostles and disciples. There are some of you in this room right now. There are some of you, and you do not know what your identity is. But the Bible tells us that everyone who comes to Jesus, he gives you a new name. He gives you a new name. And the scripture in Revelation tells us that this name is a secret. And it's a secret because if it were revealed to you right now, it would make no sense to you. You would say, that's not me. That's not me. That name doesn't fit me. That's not who I am. And you're right, it's not. It's who God's making you into. It's who God's making you into. And so now God is preparing and molding you and moving you with purpose into that name he's given you, into forming you into what he's declared you to be, into this new identity. But some of you in this room, you would say to me, Brent, Brent, that sounds good. That sounds awesome. That sounds, you know, like sunshines and rainbows, new identity, new name, all that stuff. But you don't know what I've done. You say to me, Brent, that sounds awesome, but you don't know what I've done. You do not know the sins I have committed. You don't know how unworthy I am. That might work for you nice Christian people who with your nice clothes and, and your nice life. That might work for you, but I'm too messed up. I've done too much in my past. Jesus would never take me. I'm too far gone. It doesn't matter if I name him rightly. It doesn't matter if I get all the information right. If I respond correctly, it doesn't matter because I'm too broken. I'm beyond a new identity. And here's what I want to say to you right now. You are believing a lie. You are believing a lie. You see, the devil, in this text, we're, we learn the devil cannot play offense. He can only play defense. He doesn't have any weapons. The text says all he has is some gates. All he has is a gate. And for your whole life, you have been locked behind this gate in, under the devil's control. And you've belonged to the devil. Your whole life has been that way. But all he can do is play defense. All he can do is keep you locked behind a gate. But what Jesus has told us is that the gates of hell will not prevail against what he is doing. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't playing defense. He was playing offense. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he kicked the gates of hell off their hinges. And so now the, the, the clutches of the enemy that you are in, the gate is on the ground. The gate is on the ground. You have been imprisoned your whole life, but now the gate of the cell is wide open. And the only thing keeping you inside of that gate are the devil's lies and you believing them. The devil's lies that say you're too far gone, you're too broken, you're too bad, your sins are too great. Here is the only question you have to answer. It's not are my sins too big, it's did Jesus raise from the dead? All the evidence says he did, and if he did, you know what? All of your sin, all of it, big and small, every sin, past, present, and future, was buried in a tomb in Israel a long, long time ago. And when Jesus came up out of the grave, he left your sins in the ground. That means that you can be set free. It means you can have new life. It means you can stop believing the lie and believing the excuses. And you can see the truth right in front of you. And you can have a new identity. That's what that means. You do not have to be ever, forever be marked by your past. You do not have to be marked by your present. 
Jesus right now is offering you a fresh start, all sins forgiven, all debts and expenses paid by his blood. If you belong to Christ, if you belong to Jesus, some of you in this room, you do, you belong to him, but you have a hard time letting your past go. You hold on to the guilt and the shame of things that you've done. And when you're doing that, guys, you're not remembering the cross. You're not remembering the suffering that the Christ had to go through. You're not remembering that hell has been defeated. And if you've ever come to Jesus, then as we, as we sing this song this morning, I want you to remember all of your sins have been cast as far as the east from the west. Rest in him. There's some of you in this room, and you don't know Jesus. You're, you don't have a new identity. You don't have a new name. You're still sitting in the cell with the gate on the floor, believing you're still locked up, believing you can't get out, believing your sins are too big, they won't fit through the door. But the gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus. So stop believing the lie and walk out and embrace a Savior who will make you new, who will give you a new life and a new name and a new start. Some of you are struggling with that and you feel the pull this morning. You feel the tug, and that is the gift of God. Don't fight him. Walk out of the cell. Walk out of the cell. Find your new self and your new identity. Once you come, you're going to be like my son, Eli, whose old name and old life are gone. That he, uh, so gone that Eli would not even acknowledge it if he called him, and neither can you acknowledge your old life. It's gone. Jesus is ready to give you your new name and new identity, to delete your past and walk to him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we gather together as a bunch of broken, dirty sinners. And we ask that you would do two things in us this morning. One, you would reconfirm for us our identity in Christ. For those of us in this room who've placed our faith and trust in him, would you remind us that we are no longer identified by what came before. And we're not even identified by the mistakes of this morning. We are identified by a new name and a new family and forgiveness that is given to us in Christ. We belong to him. We've been named by him. And he is making us new day by day. We struggle, we fight, but we are not defined by those things any longer. We're defined by Jesus. Help us to remember that and let go of the shame of our past. But Father, for those in this room right now who don't know you, for those of you in this room who haven't looked at the evidence or who have and reject you, for those who haven't seen you, for those who are making every excuse and listening to every lie, Father, we pray against every power and principality of darkness that would whisper lies in our ears and tell us we're not good enough, we can't come, or that it's too late, or that it's too embarrassing. God, would you show those people this morning, give them the gift you gave Simon Peter. Open their eyes. Show them that nothing would happen but claps and cheers and hugs and kisses and embraces. We want you to have a new identity, but you got to walk out of the cell. you got to come embrace Jesus and he will embrace you. He's not going to say, clean up your life first, get your act together, then you can come to me. No, he doesn't say that. He says, all expenses have been paid. Every one of them. All that is required of you is to come believe in me. All that is required is you to come and believe. You can't climb the ladder to heaven. I climbed it for you. You come to me and I carry you up. If that's you this morning, as we sing this song, I'm going to stand right up here to the left. Come, let me introduce you to Jesus. Listen to the tug of your heart and come. Your life will never, ever be the same in the, in the best way possible. 
God, give us the strength to do what we need to do. I'd love to pray with any of you. In Christ's name we pray, all people said. Let's stand together.